This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. I've always felt that blue is the color of summer. It's the color of sunny skies, of cool water, of cut-off jean shorts. It's also the theme of Bitch's summer print issue. The blue issue is full of stories about cyanotype and women who play the blues and Sailor Mercury, as well as nuanced looks at the darker sides of blue. Articles explore postpartum depression and the charged history of race, gender, and America's swimming pools. On this episode of Propaganda, we're highlighting three stories from the blue issue and the three excellent contributors who put them together. First off, Bitch Editor-in-Chief Shirsten Johnson talks with writer Nyasha Jr. about pop culture portrayals of African-American women and mental health. Then we delve into the surprising history of a blue conversation topic, the dildo. We end the show with a conversation between Bitch Media Art Director Kristen Rogers-Brown and comics artist Mari Naomi talking about her work on nonfiction comics. Also, all the music on today's show is Vintage Blues, by the great Gladys Bentley. Here we go, into the wild blue yonder. Ain't Woggies in the morning, Woggies when the sun goes down. Ain't no Woggies in the morning, Woggies when the sun goes down. Hey, I'm full of food and water, all in all the geese in town. In her article, Don't We Hurt Like You, writer Nyasha Jr. explores the lack of portrayals of African-American women and mental health on TV and in film. Drawing on examples ranging from girls to homeland, Nyasha writes, The lack of images of African-American women with mental illness, combined with the myth of the strong black woman, contributes to the mistaken notion of mental health issues as a white girl thing and compounds their stigma among African-American women. Here Nayasha talks with Bitch Editor-in-Chief Shirsten Johnson about these issues and her article in Bitch's Summer Blue Issue. What, what made you want to write the article in the first place? What was the impetus behind it? The impetus behind writing the piece came from seeing the contributor guidelines. And the theme was blue, and immediately I associated blue with depression. And I thought about a number of women I know, especially black women, um, who struggle with depression and mental health issues. Can you talk more about the pop culture angle with that and how, um, how that impacts black women and mental health? And even go into what you spoke about in your piece. So... Pop, in pop culture, we don't see black women very well represented. Um, so in television and film, we often just don't see black female characters. And when we do, they're often stereotypes. So we see uh, the Jezebel, the sassy black friend, um, the mammy character, and, and other stereotypes like that. In contrast, white women are often represented with a a full spectrum. So we see wives, mothers, girlfriends, gay, straight, 
CEOs, writers, um, any number of things. And we also see white women characters with mental illness or, or even seeking therapy. Um, we don't see black women in that same range. So, for example, on uh, Scandal with Olivia Pope, she's cool, she's calm, she's collected. Um, and portrayals of black women like that, while they can be extremely popular, can also contribute to the myth of the strong black woman. So the lack of portrayal of black women and also the very limited portrayals of particular roles of black women can make it difficult for some black women to acknowledge their very real and very normal symptoms of depression or other mental illness. It's interesting because we have another piece in the issue that's about postpartum depression, and there were some interesting overlaps there where it's like, if you don't see yourself represented, then you begin, you think that there's something wrong with you or that it's not a big deal. And it's only when we get to see these these issues reflected back to us in pop culture that we can do something about it or, or start to say, it's okay that I feel this way. Um, so that was an interesting overlap. Maybe that wasn't a question. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but it does, it, it seems like those are completely different things, but they're really not because seeing yourself reflected matters. And so just as the author mentioned in terms of postpartum depression on screen, um, when you see only women who are getting uh, push presents and going on retreats and getting their um, six-pack abs back, <laughs> if you're the one at home uh, with a crying baby suffering with postpartum depression, you're thinking, it must be me. Mm-hmm. So they must be the normal ones and I must be the abnormal one. So it's, it's a similar issue with the portrayal of black women. Not seeing yourself makes you question maybe I'm the one who's abnormal. Right. Um, Can you talk about the impact that racism and sexism or everyday microaggressions have on mental health and like what that relationship is like? Racism, sexism, uh, other factors have a huge impact on mental health. Um, There are very few mental health providers who are black and many patients express a desire for uh, same race, same ethnicity clinicians. Um, So first there's just the access isn't there. And then also it affects people in that sometimes clinicians are not culturally competent. Um, So as I mentioned in the piece, Dr. Hudson Banks at St. Louis University was talking about how depression presents differently in black women. So clinicians who are not familiar with the different ways that particular things might affect particular populations um, may end up diagnosing patients very differently depending on race. So especially for black women, um, sometimes depression may present itself in form in the form of overactivity or busyness. Um, and so a, a white, a similar white woman may present at her doctor's office saying, I think I'm depressed. My friend is taking XYZ drug. I was thinking about that. Um, 
may come in in a certain way that a clinician is familiar with. A black woman may show up. She hasn't been crying. She's still been going to work. She's still been doing everything that she's been doing. Um, and it may not sound to a clinician like this is depression. Mm-hmm. So even um, someone who's struggling may have difficulty finding the right person to understand what she's going through and provide her with the right diagnosis and treatment. Hmm. Well, I was wondering, you have a background in religion, and I was wondering if that informed this piece at all or how you approached it, or um, even if there's an overlap that you see with um, religion and mental health. Yes, I teach in the department religion at Temple, but it was more my personal experience um, of church that informed my work on this piece. And I know that among black women in particular, there's a huge stigma against seeking help. And a lot of times women, especially those who are part of faith communities, may feel that you can just um, pray it away or just be stronger in your faith. In fact, um, Dr. Walker Barnes has a wonderful phrase that she uses in her book, Too Heavy a Yoke. And she says, sometimes black women are walking with broken feet. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a a really wonderful way of expressing the ways in which for too many black women, things can be going horribly wrong in their lives, but they just keep going. Um, You ignore problems, you blame yourself, you think you should be stronger, and you keep walking, although you have broken feet. So there's a serious problem, but you just keep going. And I see that a lot of times, especially with uh, black women of faith. Mm. Well, um, if you could share anything that you've seen recently, whether it's on screen or anecdotally, that that makes you think that the the tide is beginning to shift in either representations of black women and mental illness or um, with black women being able to talk about mental health uh, better than they used to. One indicator that things might be shifting a little bit towards the positive would be, surprisingly, the Black women that we see in reality television who have sometimes made visits to therapists. So I'm thinking in particular of uh, Braxton Family Values, which has Tony Braxton and her sisters and family. And they have Uh, in various episodes, gone to see a mental health counselor who is a Black woman, Dr. Sherry. So I think that seeing those, um, seeing a Black woman therapist, seeing Black women going to therapy, making an appointment, even if it's a reality show, it's at least a small indicator that maybe the tide may be shifting a little bit and may give someone the impetus that that they need in order to at least just schedule a visit. I'll make you men fall, treat us women like you do. I'll make you men fall, treat us women like you do. That was writer Nyasha Jr. talking with Bitch Magazine editor-in-chief Shirsten Johnson. You can read her amazing article, Don't We Hurt Like You, in Bitch's summer blue issue. Let's talk about sex. Or 
specifically sex toys. In the world of sex toys, the dildo is now mainstream. Walk into any sex store and you will see a wide variety of dildos. Plus, this summer, two shows on Netflix, Orange is the New Black and Sense8, featured strap-on dildos in brief but memorable scenes. But it wasn't so long ago that the dildo was illegal. Writer Hallie Lieberman is working on a book about the history of sex toys. For Bitch's Blue print issue, she wrote an article about the surprising history of dildos in the United States. This is an excerpt of her article, If You Mold It, They Will Come. Since we live in an age when any woman can waltz into Target and emerge bearing a shopping bag full of 50 Shades of Grey branded cock rings, Trojan vibrators, and strawberry lube, it's hard to imagine that sex toys were once controversial within the feminist movement. But 40 years ago, sex toys were highly contentious, and their path to acceptance within the feminist movement started in an unlikely place the basement of a man named Gosnell Duncan. In 1965, Duncan was welding the bed of a truck on his overnight shift at the International Harvester Company in Chicago when the vehicle fell on top of him. Within seconds, the 37-year-old emigre from Grenada was paralyzed from the waist down. A skilled dancer, Duncan was devastated. He would never have an erection again. Duncan's girlfriend didn't seem to mind. They were married in the hospital. Still, Duncan was dissatisfied, and he began considering penile substitutes. But in 1965, his options were bleak. As Duncan became involved in the disability movement in the late 1960s, he learned that he wasn't alone. Many other disabled people wanted to have good sex, but didn't know where to turn to for help. While many saw themselves as sexual beings, their doctors, not to mention the sexual revolution, did not. Even in the disability movement at large, many chose to focus on other, more serious issues. Duncan began brainstorming on his own about how he could make sex aids for the disabled. When we spoke in 2013, Duncan told me that when he traveled to an Indianapolis disability conference in 1971, he was thrilled to see a section on sex and disability. During the session, Duncan patiently listened to speakers discuss their challenges with sex, but didn't hear many solutions. He saw his chance and took it. Surrounded by his target market, he asked if they would purchase a dildo. The answer was a resounding yes. Duncan returned to Brooklyn armed with confidence and began investigating the dildos that were already on the market. In the 1970s, most dildos were made of heat-treated rubber and would melt with heat. Many dildos were also made of irritating materials and had strong chemical odors. He wanted to make a dildo that wouldn't melt, wouldn't irritate people's bodies, and didn't smell toxic. At the time, dildos were low quality for a number of reasons, the biggest being that they were technically illegal. The Comstock Law, a century-old federal anti-obscenity law, barred sending sex devices through the mail. The dicey legal status of dildos discouraged many from working or innovating within the industry. 
But Duncan didn't care about social acceptability or legal problems. Unlike most of the men who had come before him, and they were usually always men. He didn't just want to make dildos for money. He saw himself as a healer, and he simply wanted to help. He began by investigating new, safer materials for dildos. While working as an auto mechanic, he'd been impressed by the pliable silicone that didn't melt even when exposed to the intense heat of an engine. This heat resistance meant that silicone could be sterilized in boiling water, which allowed for safely sharing dildos between partners. Plus, silicone lacked the strong chemical odors found in other materials. The only problem was that the silicone used in automobile parts was not exactly safe for the body. He got in touch with none other than General Electric. Duncan sent their office a letter saying that he needed a rubber-based product that is non-irritating to the human body. They put him in touch with a chemist who helped Duncan perfect the ideal silicone, smooth, flesh-like, and safe for insertion into the human body. After they finally hit on a formula, Duncan set up a dildo lab in his basement. He began by making a model out of clay then a rubber mold after that. The silicone dildos were produced under the brand name Paramount Therapeutic Products. Now that the safer, non-melting dildos existed, it was a challenge to get them to market, in part because of some feminists' resistance to using a sex toy that was modeled on a penis. But in the late 1970s, Eve's Garden in New York became the first feminist sex store to sell Duncan's dildos. The only feminist sex shop in the country, they stocked a model called the Venus, a smooth, pale pink and chocolate brown variety that looked more like a finger than a penis. Today, women-owned sex toy stores have spread from the coast into middle America and dildos are commonplace. Gosnell Duncan's Venus didn't end the dildo debates, but it was a start. Hallie Lieberman is a writer working on a book about the history of sex toys. She received her Ph.D. in 2014 from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she blogs at dildoographer.com. You can read her whole article, If You Mold It, They Will Come, in Bitch's Blue Issue and online at bitchmedia.org. If you pick up a print issue of Bitch Magazine, maybe the first place you turn is the last page. For the past six years, the last page of Bitch Magazine has always been reserved for a comic about feminist history. The Adventures in Feministry comic has profiled people ranging from musician Betty Davis to cyborg anthropologist Donna Haraway. In addition to highlighting feminist in history, the comic gives great print space to talented comics artists working today. In the summer print issue of Bitch, comics artist Mari Naomi profiled performance artist Gloria Tuyon Park for Adventures in Feministry. 
Mari Naomi herself is the author of several raw, emotionally honest autobiographical comics, including Kiss and Tell, about dating misadventures, and most recently, Dragon's Breath and Other True Stories, which is full of personal stories about identity, rebellion, and growing up, and was nominated for an Eisner Award. She also created and maintains the Cartoonists of Color database. Mari Naomi talked about her work and her history comic with Bitch Media art director Kristen Rogers-Brown. Well, let's talk a little bit about Gloria. What made her so, what made her fascinating to you? I mean, so I, I, the first I heard of her, uh, a friend of mine told me about this mysterious Asian-American performance artist uh, who, who worked with wigs and painted her eyebrows blue. And I was just intrigued by so for folks maybe who are listening who haven't had a chance to pick up the issue and see the comic, one of the things when you pitched um, this idea to us that I was really excited about was um, you mentioned that she was basically wearing outfits made out of steak and chicken liver long before Lady Gaga was, you know, even a sparkle in pop culture's eye, which I was like, yeah, let's talk about her. <laughs> Plus wigs, which sounded Plus very wigs. exciting. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, there's there so much about it that was really intriguing. When I, when I set out for it, I didn't know if she was alive even, what mm-hmm. her deal was. And yes, the more I unearthed about her, there's little tidbits online. As you sort of started drafting um, versions of the comic, I sort of noticed that about your um, your versions of the comic too. It was like each new draft, um, a little bit more of her story sort of teased out, which I thought was fascinating, both about your process of making the comic, as well mm-hmm. as maybe what you were discovering. You know, as you learned more about her. That was really fun. Uh, probably my favorite part about it was letting her see the comic in its various forms and having her correct me um, about this or that or her intentions because it, 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 I learned more about her and it helped me understand her art more and just art in general more. I mean, that, that's why I make art and that's why I consume art is I just want to know about other people. So, um, how often does someone get the opportunity to sit down or, you know, not literally, but you know, talk to somebody they admire and have, have, have their art opened up to them like a flower? It was just such a great experience. Yeah, that's, that's kind of amazing. That's pretty unique. And I think um, yeah. a lot of people think of illustration, design, writing, all of those things as being such a solitary experience. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because it's not like we as makers can't socialize with people, investigate things, <laughs> you know, speak to humans, etc. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think you... I mean, it's it's so hard for an artist to 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 get their message across. I was just talking to a writer friend of mine who um, recently had her first negative comment uh, on an article that she wrote, and and we were, we were sort of talking about goals and perception of artwork and and I was telling her in my experience even the people who 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 are your admirers even your biggest fans they're never going to get you because everyone brings to the table their own sort of experiences and they're viewing your art through their lens which is not ever going to be close even close a lot of the time to 
what you think you're putting out. And the most thing you can ever hope for is that you make you make someone happy or you make someone feel something or a connection to your work, even though it might not be the connection that you intended it to be. And, and I think that's what was really special um, about talking to her is that, I, you know, I, I came to the table with my own sort of expectations and my own appreciation for her art and, and my own ideas of, okay, well, what does this mean? Or the meat outfit, for instance, or, or, or more specifically, um, there, there was a, a, she shaved off all her body hair and all the hair off her head and in order to make a wig off it later, but she categorized each piece and she used a video camera as a mirror. It's a, so a TV screen that she's actually being videotaped as a mirror, which is kind of the opposite of a mirror because you're seeing yourself um, straight on as opposed to, uh, in reverse, so that made it very difficult. And I, I had my own concept of what that meant, and I thought that was, and 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 she sort of set me straight about, oh, this is what I did, and this is, this is what I didn't do, and I, I don't know. It, it was such a unique opportunity, definitely, to get not just an artist statement, but to have every single bit of it explained. And it just, I, I wish I could get that from all artists. <laughs> yeah, I think about that when I read fiction too, and I know that you're. I know you're a writer, um, not only of comics, but that you've written essays and all sorts of different kinds of. You're a storyteller of many different kinds, so um, I think you probably have a unique perspective on that. Um, I feel like visual visual art is um, is easier to misunderstand it than well. It's all misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just very interesting to see what people take away. I used to, I used to correct people when they, they misconstrued something in my art or they took something away from a story. And, but now I just kind of go with it. I, I, I don't want to really affect how people view it, especially if they feel like they're connected with it because uh, who am I? I mean, once I, once I put the art out there, that's, to me, I feel like that's that's the end of my job. And I wonder if your process of, of making comics, especially since they are so personal, um, has changed for you. Um, oh, it's constantly changing. How are your I, I comics like... so different um, now, maybe, like, than they were, like, a decade ago? Oh, gosh. I could tell you how different they are now than... A minute ago, ago. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like every 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 time I make a comic, I, it's just like like the stupid tortured artist I am. Uh, all I see are its faults, and so I'm constantly learning. And I see the fault. Okay, I try not to replicate that the next go round, and then you know try not to do that again. You know, the new faults. Try not to commit those faults again. Um, so there's that. I mean, I, I I like to think that I'm always growing. I wonder, too, as somebody who's made um, a lot of um, really personal work, um, especially, you know, I think about like, having read your first book where I guess I feel like you have a really open heart and I think it, it deals with a lot of risks and extremes and, and feelings that are really deeply felt. Um, I wonder if people have... Do you, do you think that people experience you differently as a writer-creator um, because you make such autobiographical comics? Differently how? Rather than somebody maybe who is just creating fiction? 
I feel like when people connect with my work, they think they're connecting with me, mm-hmm. which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's people that I've never met because people I don't, I've never met before will come up to me like they know me and, um, which is really awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of gives people, you an in socially a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I love it. People, complete strangers will tell me such personal things about their lives, and I love that. I'm, I'm by my nature, I am a too much information person. <laughs> <laughs> Just that, the other day at ALA, a person came up to me and he said, I don't know if you remember me, and I said, of course I do. The last time I saw you, you were... Um, bent over a toilet, vomiting everywhere. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, I can imagine why he doesn't remember that incident. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but to make him feel better, I told him some a very, very like embarrassing personal thing of my own, and he's like, "Oh, wow." <laughs> well, like I was like quid pro quo. I just don't want you to feel awkward. But here's something really awkward and embarrassing about me. <laughs> oh my gosh, I do that too. Actually, that's really? that may be one of the things that I like about you. It's like someone just did something embarrassing. Now watch me break something or <laughs> barf on you. I mean, but also a difference than a, than a fiction writer, for example. Um, although I do write fiction, I just haven't put it out there yet. Um, but I feel like fiction writers are often judged by their work, whereas memoirs are often judged by the contents of the memoir and how likable the protagonist is and and stuff like that. Uh, I I see that a lot of personal reviews will say, oh, I don't think I'd like her. I'm giving this no stars. So they're really, you feel like they're maybe judging the person, not the work. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it's fine because I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm sort of create like reinventing myself or creating a perception of myself, um, which is not my intention when I set out to write memoir. I just wanted to tell a good story. But... Right. I've seen you do interviews elsewhere where you say that you've done essays and poetry. Um, mm-hmm. What made you really find comics? What really fascinated you? with that as a medium? I mean, my, my goal was always to be a novelist. Oh, interesting. Because I was probably in my early 20s when I first read a comic um, that spoke to me, and it was uh, an alternative scene-type comic. Um, I don't know. I, I, I found them so fascinating. I loved how personal they were, and I, and I, and I loved how they were so unpretentious. And... Um, I read them for years until finally I thought, gosh, I could, I should do this. This is really fun. And I mean, essays and novels and comics and uh, paintings and collage, they, I feel like they all use separate parts of the brain. And one thing that I liked about comics was they, they kind of, they, they kind of use the part of the brain that, you know, when you're writing and they also kind of use the art part of the brain, but there's also it also tickles like a different part of the brain that I can't quite define. It's almost like learning another language, and it's kind of hard to unlearn now when I'm when I'm writing uh, a fiction novel because I'm the other part, like cartoony part of my brain, is like wait, use me, use me. Here, yeah. I'm gonna make you forget how to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you rely on that second story or the the linking of the stories, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's it's really just one of the things that I do, and 
right for for the moment it seems to be the one that's taken off but I'm not writing off the other ones just yet <laughs> yeah I believe it red beans and rice greasy bacon in the pot red beans and rice greasy bacon in the pot that was Bitch Media art director Kristen Rogers Brown in conversation with comics artist Mari Naomi. Her Adventures in Feministry comic can be found on the last page of the blue issue. Ham and eggs with poison. I don't get no chicken. All of the stories on today's show have come from the blue issue of Bitch, which is a beautiful 80-page-long exploration of feminism and pop culture. If you don't already have the issue, hop over to bitchmedia.org and subscribe to get that issue and three other brilliantly written, edited, and drawn print magazines over the course of the next year. I'm glad that on today's show, we could highlight just a few of the many, many talented people who put the magazine together. Nice work, team. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 